Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. This week, we're taking a break from the war, scandal, and politics to talk about our old friend, Gregory of Tours. Gregory's text, commonly called the History of the Franks, is a core text in the study of the Merovingian period and has been our key source for this podcast so far. But Gregory was more than just an observer and a historian. He had many opinions, as we have seen, and was a key figure in the history of his time. So, now that we've reached the period where he begins to appear in his own narrative, it is time to talk about him in episode 14, The Narrator. Gregory is both a key and a controversial figure. For hundreds of years, historians have argued over his work, argued over his motives, and argued over the man himself. One of the benefits of being a major figure for so many years is that every flavour of historical analysis and every framework has been applied to you at one point or another. Was Gregory French? German? A nationalist? A liberal? A radical? A romantic? A conservative? A serious historian? A biased chronicler? Well, go back far enough and you'll find each of these opinions and more. That is part of what makes him such a fascinating historical figure and such a complicated one. So we're going to start with the basics. Many of the saints and famous holy people of the late antique period had inspiring stories of humble origins and their struggles to rise out of them and do good. Gregory, or more accurately, Georgius Florentius Gregorius, was not one of these people. The future saint was born around 538 into immense wealth and privilege as one of the Gallo-Roman landowning aristocracy. Born in the strategically crucial and rich area of Clermont in the Auvergne region, Gregory was the son of Florentius, a former senator from Clermont, and Armentaria II, a prominent noblewoman and granddaughter of another prominent Gallo-Roman senator from Geneva. When Saint Euphronius, Gregory's predecessor as Bishop of Tours and his first cousin once removed, was introduced to Clothar as part of this extended family, the great king is meant to have exclaimed, quote, That is one of the noblest and most distinguished families in the land. His father died while Gregory was still young, so his mother took him from Clermont and moved to Burgundy, where she held extensive estates. Armentaria seems to have been a rather remarkable woman, navigating the tumultuous years of post-Frankish conquest in Burgundy and the incessant civil wars, while maintaining her independence as a widow and her connections to benefit her sons. Her powerful influence over her son cannot be understated, and it must always be kept in mind, especially when Gregory talks about powerful, independent women. As a member of the upper crust of Gallic society, Gregory was always destined for a church career. As I have previously stated, the church in this period was hugely influential, rich, and entirely controlled by the Gallo-Romans. In fact, Gregory was the great-grandson, grand-nephew, and nephew of the bishops of Langres, Lyon, and Clermont, respectively. It was under his uncle in Clermont, St. Gallus, and his successor, St. Avitus, 
that Gregory was educated and prepped for his inevitable rise in the clergy. If it wasn't clear by this point, Gregory was incredibly well connected. On top of this, we know he also kept in regular correspondence with another famous, powerful saint, Radegund. Due to all of these things, it is perhaps unsurprising that upon the death of Euphronius, Gregory was chosen to succeed him in Tours in 573 at age 34. Now, with all of that said, Gregory did not have the easiest time as bishop. Tours was a massively important city. It wasn't just that it was a large urban centre, it also lay at the very centre of Gaul, connecting the more heavily Frankish northern half to the rich and taxable mostly Gallo-Roman lands and cities of the south. Five major Roman roads ran through the city, and it lay on the banks of the River Loire, making it a hub for communication and transport. As previously mentioned, it was also the centre of the hugely important cult of St. Martin, the most famous and beloved saint in Gaul. On top of all this, Tours was also one of the 11 metropolitan sees in Gaul, making Gregory one of, if not the, most important bishop in the region. With the popes stuck in power struggles between the Eastern Romans and the various barbarian rulers of Italy, the metropolitan bishops basically were the church. A lot to hand over to an untested 34-year-old? Definitely. And it appears the people of Tours agreed. While he was related to the previous bishop, Gregory does not seem to have been a popular choice early in his career. There seems to have been unrest and discontent amongst the citizens of Tours, who may have wanted a local to be elevated instead. Technically, the bishop was elected by the people and clergy of the city, but in practice, the king and his court often held immense influence over this process. Gregory seems to have benefited from this, forging an informal alliance with Sigebert and Brunhild, possibly with the help of Radegund, and gaining the seat with their approval. This is particularly interesting since he would spend much of his career as bishop railing against the influence kings and queens had over this exact process, becoming one of the fiercest defenders of the church's independence. It seems to have taken Gregory a few years to consolidate his position in the city. We don't see him making any major departures until the Council of Paris in 577. And even after he had calmed the citizens of Tours, his position was still in danger, both internally and externally, for the rest of his tenure. All bishops in this period were political animals, and Gregory was no different. He would clash with royal authority, deal with major controversies in the church, and have to defend his position time and time again. All of these stories will come up naturally as we continue through the period, and they will hit a full range of emotions. We feel Gregory's anger and grief as he writes about his own brother's death, his frustration and fear at his treason trial, his resolve and determination during his confrontations with Chilperic, and his malice and hatred unleashed upon the king's death. 
all of these things in time. For now, let's talk about what Gregory actually did in his day-to-day -day life. As Lewis Thorpe says in his introduction to Gregory's histories, quote, To become a bishop in Merovingian Gaul in the 6th century was to shoulder great responsibility and to wield great power. As one of the most influential men in the kingdom, Gregory not only had to deal with the internal politics and spiritual needs of his city, he also had to try and influence politics on a kingdom-wide scale. As bishop, it was Gregory's responsibility to defend from what he saw as threats to the spiritual well-being of the realm. Be they heretical Arians, the many Jewish citizens who turn up at various points in his writings, or even holy men who claim to be Christ himself returned to the flesh. He had to enmesh himself in the messy politics of doctrinal disputes that ravaged the early Christian church, as well as see to the maintenance and governance of places of worship from cathedrals to local churches to monasteries and nunneries. All of these would cause endless headaches and controversies in his time. On top of this, Gregory wielded not only a spiritual authority, but also a temporal authority. As we've covered in this podcast, the early Merovingians were not big on bureaucracy. The light touch with which they ruled left a bit of a power vacuum in the cities of the realm, a vacuum that was quickly filled by the bishops as the only real authorities left. But by Gregory's time, this local supremacy was starting to wane as Frankish rule became more settled and the Frankish aristocracy began to insinuate themselves into the cities and regions of the kingdom. Gregory would face particular difficulties with a Frankish aristocrat named Ludist, but he was not alone in struggling for power in this period. Now, you may be asking yourself, if the king held all the power and the Franks were the ones with the weapons, what chance did a holy man like Gregory have? How did the Gallo-Roman clergy make themselves powerful in this period? Well, first it must be pointed out the immense power Christianity held in this period. The kings we've been discussing might not seem to be acting in a particularly devout manner, but those who followed Clovis were definitely convinced of the power of God. Just think about how Clothar ended his life, aware of his sins, desperately making deals with Radagon to pray for his soul, and going on pilgrimages. Charibert might have been willing to suffer the shame of excommunication, one of the most devastating powers the Gallic bishops wielded. But Clothar wasn't when he stopped sleeping with Theudopold's widow after being threatened by the clergy. Later, we will also see Gregory employing another favoured tactic, excluding someone from receiving communion. This was a major punishment in this period, as it was seen as endangering someone's eternal soul, and it had strong, coercive power. Beyond these things, the bishops also played important political roles in this period. Like we talked about with the queens, Power is not all swords and armies. Bishops in this period employed a particular brand of soft power that our friend, historian Helmut Reimers, calls pastoral power. He describes them as, quote, 
cultural intermediaries who stand guard over the crucial junctures and synapses of relationships, which connect different social groups or systems to the larger whole, end quote. To put it more simply, bishops like Gregory often place themselves in the role of cultural mediators, taking position in the middle ground to mediate between the different social groups of the kingdom. In this role, they were indispensable, often acting as diplomats in disputes or between kings. Gregory himself was a prolific traveller, and we can track his movements to basically every corner of the kingdom. In keeping in contact with the Frankish kings, whose thrones they didn't threaten and who needed their spiritual guidance, and leveraging that influence to become respected figures that were key to any kind of diplomacy, the bishops made themselves massively influential in this period. They were the link between the conquerors and the conquered, and even between the conquerors and other conquerors. It is for this reason they are sometimes called cultural brokers, constantly playing the middleman in Frankish politics to maintain their influence. If this strategy sounds familiar, it is because it shares a lot with the strategy queens used in this period. Place yourself close to the king, make yourself useful, then play the middleman and negotiate. Once you're at the table, you can influence things to go your way with ease, or, as Reimers puts it, quote, their intermediate position allows brokers to promise more than they can deliver, end quote. The bishops of this period, like the queens, were simply filling a niche created by the unique nature of Merovingian politics, then exploiting it for their own gain. As the most famous and well-known bishop of this period, Gregory is a poster child for this kind of interpretation, and he strikes an interesting figure. In a period dominated by these tough, brutal, carefully masculine Franks, Gregory provides stark contrast. He was short, thin, and not physically imposing in the slightest. He was also a very sickly man, often suffering from bouts of ill health that may or may not have been worsened by his insistence on mixing himself various odd potions made from the dust of relics and even scrapings of their bone or skin. Despite this, the roles were often reversed in reality. Gregory appears to have been a hugely courageous man, facing down armed men several times, refusing to flee when accused of slandering Queen Fredegund, defending himself and others at various trials, and steadfastly fighting any attempt to tax the people of his city. Though he sometimes tries to humbly hide his actions, there is no missing the fact that this small, weak priest often showed real strength while the cowardly and scheming Frankish kings slinked out of confrontation time and time again. Obviously, Gregory is biased, but his confrontations with Chilperic are fascinating for exactly this reason. Now, with a stronger grasp of what he did, and what kind of man he was, let's talk about Gregory's writing. See, understanding Gregory's political life helps us grasp his biases, and adjusting our interpretations for these biases is important, but they are not all that is going on in his work. For years, 
many historians were charmed by Gregory's work. He writes in such a frank and honest way, with brutal honesty in parts, and has this air of vulnerability that makes you want to believe his side of the story. Early in his work, he writes of himself with great humility, stating he is but a simple priest in trying his best while apologising for any mistakes or deficiencies in his history. His work is also gripping and engaging, especially by ancient standards, and because of all this, historians used to believe Gregory was a fairly impartial observer, simply recording things as he saw them. This attitude has fallen out of favour in recent years, and historians tend to think of Gregory now as a keenly intelligent man who wove subtle literary themes and tropes in and out of his work. A big turning point in his view of Gregory is the work of a new friend, Walter Goffart. Goffart's work, The Narratives of Barbarian History, published in 1988, is a somewhat controversial work, in part because it attacked previous works that described Gregory as naive, blunt, and sincere. Building on the work of other 20th century historians who had begun to reinterpret this view of the Gallo-Roman, Goffart took an extra step and applied techniques of literary analysis to Gregory's work. Goffart attempted to argue that Gregory's work should be viewed not only as a historical source, but also as a literary one. He examined the context in which Gregory wrote, he pointed out the classical references, and even examined the tone which Gregory used. To go through everything Goffart wrote would take all episode, so I want to focus on one key point. Goffart talks about Gregory's writing technique, claiming he essentially had two modes that he calls irony and romance. Gregory employs irony to deal with the mundane and sometimes harsh realities of life in Merovingian Gaul, juxtaposing it against the heightened romance sections which describe the miracles, lives of holy people, saints, and the active hand of God which Gregory firmly believed worked in day-to-day life. This back and forth served to continually underline Gregory's moral perspective, showing the reader the bad and then contrasting it to what he saw as good to teach the reader how they should be thinking. It is this kind of subtle approach that is lost when you underestimate Gregory's work, and it is an idea I want us to keep in mind as we move forward in this podcast. The coming stories are Gregory at his finest, and we will see examples of this contrast that pervade his work. This is not the only technique the bishop uses in his work, but it is a key one. See if you can spot which passages are stark, grim, and sometimes verging on black comedy, as the ordinary world continues to disappoint Gregory, and which sections are drenched in this otherworldly wonder and hope. I'll be engaging more with the church and the religious discussion as we move forward, so this contrast should become more obvious. There is, of course, more we could talk about. Historians have devoted decades of work, massive tomes, and fierce debate to the subject of Gregory and his writing. But we aren't here for these debates. We are here to learn about the Merovingians and the period they lived in. With a strong idea of who Gregory was, where he came from, what his life was like, 
how he influenced politics and how he wrote his work, we can move forward. We have covered a lot this week, so thank you for making it to the end. The ideas we have discussed here are important, so keep them in mind as we dive back into the lives of the Frankish kings and queens. As we move forward in this podcast, I want to slow the pace and broaden our focus. Episodes like this that discuss important parts of the period that get lost amongst the stories of the kings will become more frequent. I will try to find places to pause our narrative and talk about things like the law, the economy, the international situation, and religion as they become relevant. If everything goes well, you won't only be able to horrify your friends and family with unspeakably grim stories about murdered children and massacred peoples, you'll also be able to dazzle them with fascinating facts about the crucial diplomatic role Gallic bishops played in cross-cultural brokerage and dispute resolution. Trust me, they'll love it. Next week, we're back with the three surviving sons of Clothar. As Brunhild slowly begins to build her power and experience politically, the realm is torn apart by plague, church politics, Saxon incursions, Lombard invasions, and guess what? More civil war. Oh yeah, we're going to get right back into it and watch the three kings scramble to put out one fire after another. See you then. <laughs>